0: alien. There comes a point in an automobile where it's diminishing return, but you really got to have a conversation in your head. What is it costing you to drive that car per mile? I got to
1: be little jacket.
0: The car doctor because here's a car that was perfectly good that was all paid for i don't want to spend any money on this car he went out and spent twenty six thousand dollars on a three-year-old used car that in two years it's gonna need the same thing let me tell you something folks you can't fix stupid welcome to the radio home of ron and Ania, the car doctor since 1991 this is where car owners the world over turn to For their definitive opinion on automotive repair. If your mechanic's giving you a busy signal, pick up the phone and call in. The garage doors are open. But I am here to take your calls at 855-560-9900. And now, here's Ronnie. Hey, welcome. Come on in. Ronnie and the car doctor. Have a seat. Let's talk about cars this hour. I am here at your service, as always, at 855-560-9900 to talk to you about anything automotive, whatever you've got going on. That's what the Car Doctor Radio Show is about and has been about these past 25 years. We are out on the Internet, of course, cardoctorshow.com. We're finding links there. You can find links there to tunein.com, iheart.com, itunes.com, all different ways and places and shapes to uh, take the Car Doctor with you in MP3 format or subscribe and so on and uh, deal with that. And uh, also keep in mind we are also subscribed to the Google, I think it's Google Patch. Tom, look at me. Is it Google Patch, the new Google subscription service? Uh, Google Play. Uh, We're going to be out there as soon as Google comes out with that, so you can subscribe to The Car Doctor out on Google as well. And uh, we're just trying to keep even with all the different kinds of formats that uh, are coming up as the world continues to evolve, because much like automobiles, the age of the media continues to uh, change things, and it becomes game changers. Received an email this week from a listener, and as a matter of fact, he's been a guest here on the show. Steve from Cincinnati. Steve's an automotive instructor, and uh, he's 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 in my age group. I consider him one of the silver hairs, as uh, as it is. And uh, I'm not sure where that silver hair came from, but uh, I can tell you, after working on cars for 43 years, I can understand it on a day to day basis. Steve writes, "Hey Ron, congrats on congrats on 25 years being on radio. We all appreciate the sacrifices you and your team have made to do this show every week." Thank you, Steve. I'm glad to hear that things seem to be working out well for Harry uh, between him and his girlfriend. Harry's just such a heartthrob. It sounds like she has been a positive influence for him. Hope it all works out for the way you want in this new year. I'm sure it will, Harry. Ron has commented several times about the need to have a good, repeatable diagnostic process to use every time you're using diagnosing a problem. I thought it might be interesting for Ron to discuss the steps he takes. What is his diagnostic process? I think it could be a big help. To his listeners, I know I have used one for years and it cuts down on wrong diagnosis. Take care, Steve. Great point, Steve. My diagnostic process, as it were, as it is, it's a combination of things. First and foremost, I always want to verify what it is I'm chasing. And, And part of that becomes, I want to make sure, is the vehicle able to respond to diagnosis? We had a uh, let me think back. 1998 Ford Expedition this week dropped off for a misfire fault that no one in the area could diagnose and repair. It was uh, it was parts. It was this. It was that. It was we can't work on it anymore. We're not quite sure what to do. Take it somewhere else. And another ended up on my doorstep. As a matter of fact, the results of that. Tom, is that posted out on Facebook, the uh, picture of my hand? Yeah, my hand got a little mangled. Working on this expedition because the number four plug all the way back on the passenger side is so stuffed in there. This car had dual rear heat, front heat, rear heat, and it's really a tight fit. And being the mechanic, you know, you got to fix it. You just, you know, shove in a little deeper and just make it work, and there was no real way around it. And uh, my hand, my left hand took a beating. And it's uh, we thought Tom wanted me to put it up on Facebook. He says, you know, why don't we take a picture of that and show it? This way people realize you really do work on cars. Well, I can tell you I really do work on cars, but okay, whatever makes you happy. So that's out on the Car Doctor Facebook page. So this expedition came in with a misfire fault. And I started to think about my diagnostic routine, got in the truck to verify it, and lo and behold, the gas gauge is on A. And I said, well, the gas gauge must be broken because... Nobody would really drop off a vehicle for a running problem with no gas in it, right? I mean, how dumb can people be? So I took it around the block, and I went for a little bit of a ride, and I verified the misfire, and I brought it in, and I did my scope work, and I did what I had to do and diagnosed it and solved it. And I'm going to talk about that diagnosis in the second hour. So long and the short of it is, you know, what's my diagnostic routine? Verify the problem. But the thing is, will the vehicle respond? Is the vehicle capable of of being diagnosed when I talked to the owner a short time later about what I had found I said by the way I guess the gas gauge is broken he said no it works why I said well the gas gauge is on Ian that says low fuel lights on he goes oh yeah it's out of gas you can stop and put gas in it for me right yeah I can do that I can wash it too if you want it's just going to cost you and that's part of the process will the vehicle respond is it stable it's no different than working on a human being what is the physical condition of the vehicle I lifted the hood on this expedition, and this isn't even the vehicle I wanted to talk about in my diagnostic routine. I've got a completely different vehicle in mind. I lifted the hood on this 1998 expedition. The battery looks like a sea of white foam, and it's missing one of its battery caps. I'd like to drive around in a vehicle with a misfire, missing a battery cap. You wonder what the potential, if there is a potential for explosion or at least damage to the battery. But in any event, how do you drive around with an open source of sulfuric acid under the hood, exposure to wiring harness, and nobody notices this? So part of my diagnostic routine, going back to that, is I do a visual. What kind of shapes this vehicle in? Because that'll tell you a lot. Number one, it'll tell you what kind of a customer you're working for. It'll tell you, is that person interested in maintenance? Are they taking care of the car? Or has this beast been brought in wheezing and gasping? It's final breath to the point that now that it won't run and really gives them a problem, they'll finally spend a few bucks on it. So physical condition by a visual inspection is the first step of my diagnostic routine. Not that it changes anything, but it tells me what I'm dealing with. Part of the problem in diagnosing a vehicle, for me, it gets to be emotional. You know, if you let your emotions get involved, this car's a piece of junk, this car's a piece of junk, this car's a piece of junk, and it's not like that. That has to go to the back of your mind. it has to be what's the source of the problem what steps am I going to take to resolve it? I had a two thousand one Chevy Lumina came in this week regular customer Kenny good guy I like Ken um, been coming to us for many many years and he gets it he flat out gets it he understands the value of maintenance he understands the importance in being able to in being able to and allowing us to take care of the car and it's not that he spends money that makes him a good guy he understands. The cause and effect. If you do, the car lasts. If you don't, the problems become more expensive quicker. This 2001 Lumen has got 207,000 miles, almost 208,000 miles on it. And when it finally wheezed its way into the door, because it was had a couple of check engine light faults. It had let's see, one, two, three, four, five, six, seven, eight. It had a P0300 a P0404 EGR circuit, a P0405 EGR circuit, it had a P0410 air pump, P0442 EVAP, P0446 EVAP, P0463 P1811 trans adaptive. I fixed it. I fixed it by changing one part. And for those of you that may not or may not understand may or may not understand that, here's the deal. And this is the diagnostic routine. You start to break it down in some kind of logical manner. How surgical can you be? Can you bring this to the point of understanding what affected what? The P0300 and the EGR faults made perfect sense to me. The EGR valve, this is an electronic EGR valve on this car. The electronic EGR valve was sticking open at idle and also providing er erratic readings back to the PCM causing a stumble and a hesitation, and it didn't run properly. Ergo, misfire. Changed the EGR valve, diagnosed it properly going through the routine. Diagnosed it, functional test, voltage, verify. Bad EGR, changed it. While I was changing the EGR valve, I was looking around, as I always do, and I noticed that the vacuum hose for the air pump divert valve had fallen off the rear divert valve at the back of the engine. Fixed the P0410. The 442 and the 446, the EVAP faults, I can't say that I fixed it, but I did diagnose it. I smoke tested, and using a Tech 2 scan tool, factory dealer level tool, I cycled the purge and the EVAP vent solenoids, and they both worked. System passed. System held smoke. So where this leak is is either operator-induced, meaning the gas caps being put on properly each and every time, or the vent and or the purge valves are electronically sticking and failing after 16 years, 208,000 miles on the road. So in my mind, what I said to Ken was, I said, look, if this continues, what I would do is, and he's done a gas cap, number one, make sure the gas cap's on the next time you see the light. Make sure it's been put on properly. But I'd consider replacing the vent and or the purge as they're common failures. And if they're original, you owe the car at least $100 worth of parts. Why not? And they're not very expensive. The the 463 is a fuel-level sender, which is the third one in the vehicle. For some reason, this car has an appetite for eating fuel-level senders, and it makes me think my argument about the quality of replacement parts isn't the exact same as the quality of the original part that was put into the car, even though it's a GM fuel-level sender. 2001 was a few years ago, and I question whether we're getting true GM quality out of these pieces. And the 1811 is easy. It's a trans-shift problem. It's internal in the trans, it's reached the end of its adaptive limit, and it's probably time for an overhaul. So out of the six or eight codes that are here, one part, one diagnosis. Simple enough, because I broke it down into bite-sized pieces, I wasn't overwhelmed by the fact of, oh my God, there's seven or eight codes here, six or eight codes here, however you want to look at it. And that's part of a good diagnosis is I break it down into pieces. I take a bite of the sandwich one step at a time. I start to test things. Now, one of the things I do first as the vigil, as I pointed out with the expedition, always look at the battery, probably one of the first things I go to. Always look at the battery, always scan for codes, even if the light's not on. I've got a great story when I come back about this Ford Taurus with a heating problem that scanning for codes helped save a lot of grief in the long run because it had, well... We'll tell you that story when we come back. But I guess the best way I can sum up a diagnostic routine is step by step. It changes by vehicle, but it still stays within a consistent range. And maybe what I'll have to do is I'll do that. I'll post a diagnostic routine out on Facebook for all to see. And uh, maybe that's how we can do this and you can get more out of it because I don't think I can do it justice. In a 12 minute opening monologue. 855 560 9900. I'm Ron Aining, the car doctor, here to take your calls. We'll be back right after this to open the garage doors. Stay tuned. <music> We're back on the Indian Car Doctor here, 855 560 9900 is the phone number. And uh, before we dive into the tourist story, I think we'll kick the garage doors open first. Uh, Mr. Harry, yes, who do you have for me on the phones here? You're looking very schvelt again today. Well, down to 185, baby. There you go. Well, what's going on? Uh, today we have uh, Dave's in Watertown, Connecticut. He's got a 2011 Honda Accord. Now, if he was in England. You'd say he has a bit of a sticky wicket, but in the United States, it's a Honda recall: sticky pistons, sticky piston rings, sticky piston rings, sticky yeah, piston rings. It. Okay, cool. Thank you. Let's. Uh, hey, Dave, you there, Ron and in and the car, doctor at your service, sir. How can I help?
2: I am Ron. Uh, it's good to talk to you. Thank um, you. Thanks for taking my call. You're welcome. Uh, I bought this Honda back in uh, December 2014, and this past August, I received a letter from Honda that informed me on some 2008 to 2011. Uh, core vehicles, the piston rings may be sticking. I recently uh, have a guy that does the um, oil change on the side religiously with a 020W synthetic every 5,000 miles. He said I was a, a third of a quart down. So I showed him the letter. He said he'd monitor it, but I really want to know how. how do you know when you have high oil consumption? And furthermore, in the case of getting it repaired, it sounds to me like I have to put the money out and then apply for reimbursement. Is that standard, um, standard procedure for for warranty recalls?
0: No. What what? And I can't say standard procedure for warranty recalls because who, who knows what tomorrow is going to bring. But I can tell you for this particular problem on this point, what Honda is doing, first things first, they're doing an oil consumption test. So the oil change needs to be done at the dealer. All right. Mm-hmm. They need to, and this is my understanding this is what I've seen people go through from the shop, uh, it needs to be done at the dealer. The dipstick is either sealed or verified as far as how much oil is on it, and the car is brought back in 1,000 miles, and the dipstick is marked where's the oil level. Um, they have the determination of what they're considering to be high oil consumption. My understanding is it's somewhere between 500 to 750 miles a quart in terms of how fast you'll go through it. But the, the issue one
2: third is not even close to high
0: well one third in, in, in what kind of a time frame 5,000 miles No, one third isn't a lot at all one third one third is is not anything of, of consequence. Are you having any other problems with it Dave?
2: No 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 I love the vehicle
0: okay I, I mean it. it would probably help you to get yourself get your hands on a copy of Honda's bulletin it's 12-087. it came out June of 15. And it covers 2008 through 11 accords, and it talks about a warranty extension because of sticking rings, resulting in high oil consumption, and it will it will explain exactly based on VIN status whether or not you're you're um you're covered. But uh, this right. is that's that's the letter that I'm referring to that okay. I received. Okay, so then object. you've got it. Okay, yeah, as long as you've got a copy of that, then it, and and be be mindful if they've sent you a copy, then they consider you in that mix. And that you're part of right. that, so you know it's something I would be aware of. I probably wouldn't take it into you. I probably wouldn't take it into Honda yet, but I would be keeping an eye on oil consumption, and I would be very careful once you get towards the end of the life of that warranty. I would yeah maybe ten thousand miles early. I would take it in, and um, make sure that you know you're not having any kind of a consumption issue that's going to come up after the vehicle's out of warranty.
2: Okay, as long as you mention that, because they do have two conditions on the warranty. It's been eight years from original date of purchase or 125,000 miles. Right. Now, is that eight years from my purchase or from the manufacturer selling it?
0: Fair question. I believe it's from the manufacturer selling it. It's best to assume that. Right. I would would assume that because that's the worst. The other thing I would suggest is make sure as you're getting your oil changes done, and here's where the customer pays the penalty for not choosing the dealer to repair the vehicle or to maintain the vehicle, and I don't think this is right. I think, uh, I think we still have to have freedom of choice in this country. You know, Make sure you maintain and keep your records clear on when the oil changes were done, what type of oil was used, and I would even go so far as to maybe put down a name brand of oil filter just so you can prove the point that you're not doing quote-unquote cheap oil changes, and they can turn around and say, hey, that's what caused the problem.
2: Wow, that's uh, it's funny you mention that because i got a excellent mechanic, and uh, I'm just giving like $20 on the side to change the oil, and he's like, yeah, I'll change it for you. Right. So
0: right. Maybe well,
2: a handwritten note from him would help too, huh?
0: Well, maybe an official invoice from him would help, and if he's doing it for $20, Dave, I've got to tell you, I would question what kind of oil and what kind of filter he's using because...
2: No, 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 no. I provide the oil and the oil oh, filter. Okay. I'm using the O20W recommended. Right. Well, and I buy the uh, filters from the dealer.
0: Yeah, well, then, you know, listen, you can change your own oil. There's no law in this country that says you can't change your own oil and be penalized for it. So as long as you keep the receipt for the oil and the filter that you're buying, I I, I would think you're okay. But, again, that's a conversation with Honda. Let me say it all like right, this. Out of, out of all the car companies... Honda's in my top five of cars that I like that I think make a good car. But out of all the car companies, I think Honda's got the biggest ego and the worst attitude when it comes to customer service because they still maintain that we're Honda and we don't make a mistake, uh, you know, deference. And I I disagree with that 100%. So just be careful when you're dealing and talking to Honda. I'm Ron in The Car Doctor. We are back right after this. Back. We're on an Indian? The Car Doctor at eight five 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 six zero nine nine zero zero. That is the Car Doctor's twenty four seven number. That system has that that phone number has a system attached to it, a messaging system. That if you call, leave a message. Fast Harry, our executive producer, will call you back and put you in queue for the next live broadcast of this radio show, which is Saturday afternoons two to four p.m. Eastern time. Uh, I, I should just I just want to make one more comment about the diagnostic routine we were talking about at the top of the hour. And I think it's important to note that part of it also is naturally cover the basics. Yes, will I check fuel pressure? If it's easy enough, and I think that's the direction we're going. If it's a two-hour process, some cars are just nightmares to check fuel pressure on. Will I spend the time? Not at first. You know, first impressions count with me. And the most important things I do are drive the vehicle, verify the complaint, what kind of shapes the vehicle in, what does the battery look like, what do the battery cables look like? And what does a scan tool tell me as far as what I might be dealing with? And that's probably my first steps, the first places I start. And one other thing, whenever I'm working on the vehicle, I always keep my eyes open because I'm looking for that secondary problem that may or may not be there, and uh, I haven't found it yet because I'm still working on the first one. So just part of my diagnostic routine. Let's get over and apply that. Let's see what's going on. Line two, let's talk to Dick from Whiting, New Jersey, 2005 Hyundai. Hey, Dick, how are you? How can I help?
1: Fine, thanks. Thanks for taking my call. You're welcome, sir. Do uh, uh, you want me to tell you my... Oh, okay. Sure, go ahead. Uh, I have a... I'm used to driving my Toyota, and I just retired. Okay. And I had 217,000 miles on the Toyota Matrix, and I've noticed every time I change my oil with that car, every 5,000 miles, because I put on that many much more, uh, the oil always looks fairly clean. Now, on this Hyundai that my wife has been using, it's a 2005 Hyundai Tucson. It's got 51,000 miles on it. Uh, The last problem I had is they they overfilled it by like almost an inch. I made them remove the oil, and they did that, and they apologized, and I have it on record. But I noticed the last oil change, this last one, uh, when I checked the oil, the oil was very dark, and it also had an odor of gasoline on it. They told me that's normal, and that's why I'm calling you.
0: Well, when you're saying the oil was dark, the oil was dark right after the change?
1: No, it was dark, uh, I would say, no, five months later.
0: Okay. All right. So it sounds like five months later the oil was due to be changed, and it yes. had a smell of gasoline. I'd, yes. be, I'd be curious if you could light the end of the a dipstick with a, with a, uh, with a match or a cigarette lighter, if it would catch, if it would burn. If it's really that much gas, is the oil level over full? No,
1: that's that's the straight. That was the next thing I forgot to tell you. It wasn't over the over the uh, over the ad mark.
0: Yeah, if it's not over o- over the low mark or over the I full mean the mark. Roma, right. Yeah, the full mark. Um I would have to say Dick that if it's if you can't light the end of the dipstick with a match and there's no check engine light on and fuel here's a case where I would check fuel pressure, is fuel pressure normal and fuel trims look good, I would think what you're smelling is normal condition for the vehicle. If the and it engine
1: beauty, I mean it idles beautifully, right? And
0: if the engine has fuel in the crankcase, especially on a modern computerized engine like today, you're going to see some drastic changes in the way the vehicle operates. Fuel trim, O2 sensor, air fuel sensor response—it's okay. going—it's going to be noticeable. But the, the simplest thing we used to do in the shop back in the day when we had problems like this, and you don't see a lot of cases of fuel in the crankcase anymore, and that's a testimony to how good cars and vehicles in general have gotten, is just light the end of it. Does it catch fire?
1: Oh, interesting. Okay, yeah, All right. I'll do fuel, that. Fuel is fuel, and, and right? One quick question, sure. which didn't pertain to this, is the last time I went, which was like a week ago, to get the oil change again, and I, my wife only puts on like 2,000 miles In five months six months actually five months but they tell me you know you've got the car since 2005 and you've never changed the plugs or the wires I said well from my experience the car starts right up I keep it in everything that I've ever needed what you guys told me to do I did and and I said the car starts right up it doesn't hesitate it has power why would I want to change the plugs when it calls for, like, 65,000 miles anyway?
0: Let me, let me, ask, you so, let me ask you something, Dick. Do you, yeah. do, do you do everything today as good as you did 10 years ago?
1: Absolutely not.
0: All right. Uh, you've aged a little bit, right? Yes, sir. And even though it isn't time to sort of replace your parts, um, you're tired. You're feeling the strain of 10 years. Cars the same way. Now, the bigger issue is those spark plugs, while they're two-thirds worn, if we want to follow that 60,000, 65,000-mile time span, this car's got 40,000 miles on it, the bigger issue is will those plugs come out of the head? Because over time, those steel plugs will bond to the aluminum head and create an issue on removal. So waiting until the very last minute, trying to squeeze that last nickel out of it, doesn't pay. What I would recommend I and I do this, we say this at the shop all the time, if a manufacturer calls for we'll make it easy, a hundred thousand mile spark plug replacement. Right,
1: right. C-
0: consider doing them seventy five at eighty. You know, consider doing it two thirds of the way, especially if they're tough to get at. Especially if it's an issue where if a plug breaks off in the head, how difficult is it gonna be to repair or replace? This expert well,
1: miles on the car now, fifty-one thousand.
0: I put plugs in it. Put the
1: plugs in. Okay. I, I
0: wouldn't. I wouldn't hesitate. I would replace the plugs. I would also consider replacing the wires. And when okay. you replace the plugs, and here's the nice part: when that car was made back in two thousand five, spark plug technology was here on the evolution chart. Spark plug technology today is miles ahead. They've come out with some spark plugs today. For example, Iridium TTs from Denso, absolutely the best plug in the marketplace today for its technology, what it's brought in terms of using Iridium and the way they manufacture them and the way they give them life. And the best part or one of the small points about the uh, Denso Iridium TTs is the fact that there is a self-lubricant on the threads. There's no need to worry about any, any type of uh, anti-seize or any other compound, and it will help in the plug's removal. Hey listen, you should be here 100,000 miles from now to the point where you have to replace them if you follow what I'm saying. Okay. So, you can read more about Denso's out at densott.com if you've got internet access and yeah. uh, consider, you know, you're buying technology today and and the fact that you can change the plugs now, change them. It's it's a ch- it's a cheap insurance policy against oh, a yeah. bigger problem yeah, in no, the future. No
1: problem. Okay. All right, sir. Yeah, thank you you're, so much. You're very
0: welcome, sir. You take good care. I'm Ron Annie in the car doctor 8555609900. We're back right after this. Hey, welcome back, Ronanini. and the car, Doctor here eight five 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 six zero nine nine zero zero. The twenty four seven car doctor message uh, service is there if you uh, call during uh, non show hours. We're live Saturday afternoons two to four p.m. Eastern time. Call eight five 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 six zero nine nine zero zero, and we're not on the air. There is a message service attached to that you can leave a message and fast Harry our executive producer will call you back and get you in queue for the following weeks we can talk to you and keep in mind that um, if you're looking to follow us we're out on Facebook and uh, we are looking for questions out on Facebook we're going to start to open that up and uh, bring that into the uh, other side of the show we're trying to connect with you on the media side as well going forward this year so uh, if you've got a question. Get it up on the Ron and Amy and the Car Doctor Facebook page, and we'll take it from there. Quick piece of email. This comes to us from Dave in Lubbock, Texas. Ron, I'm comparing the following automobiles, 2005 through 2009 Nissan Ultima, Kia Optima, Hyundai Sonata, Volkswagen Passat, or Volvo S60. Whew, what a list. With comparable mileage, 100,000-ish, and features, which would be the better buy safest choice? David, he's a he's in the Army Reserves, chaplain. Um mm-hmm. I'd, I'd say God bless you, Father, but I think he already has. Um, let's see. 2005 through nine: Nissan Altima, Kia Optima. The Kia Optima's out. It's too old. Uh, to me, Kias are good five-, six-year cars, and you're already on the outer fringe of that. The Volkswagen Passat, do I really have to answer the question about the better buy of the reliability of the Volkswagen Passat? I think the Volkswagen, when it was new, was a good car, and I think when it was... Less than five years old, it was a good car, but I think by now the electronics and the parts are falling off it so fast that, nah, it's not such a good car. Volvo S60? Absolutely not. Um, Volvos have, and you know, you can see it in their sales numbers. I looked at this a short time ago, six, seven months ago, that Volvo now sold less than a half a million cars in the U.S. uh, from from a time period where they used to sell like a million and a half, two million just, uh, I think it was six years ago. So Volvo is definitely on the downhill slide. So Volkswagen's out, Volkswagen's out, Kia's out. Nissan Ultima or the Hyundai Sonata? Um, I got to tell you, it, 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 believe it or not, my choice here is probably the Hyundai. And again, depending upon condition and maintenance and what's been done to it, that's always very important. Uh, you know, and I will say this: Let me just back up a second. The safest, the safest vehicle here is probably hands down still the Volvo. Volvo does make a very safe car. They just have a very high cost to maintain and repair as they get older. So, you know, that being said, if, if we're out after flat-out safety and the heck with everything else, Volvo, not a problem. If we're looking for a balance of it, I would take a look at the Sonata. I would take a look at the Ultima. The Ultimas have a problem. Eh, by 05 it was over on most of them, but some of them still have issues with floor pans rusting. But, you know, and some other things mechanically, but as long as the choices of a Nissan Ultima or a Hyundai Sonata are that they've been maintained, then it's, you know, pick your pick your poison. Um, I think Hyundai is the surprise of the bunch. Hyundai has really come a long way in the last 15 years. When the first Hyundais came to the marketplace, they were basically three-year cars, and you threw them away. But now they've, they've really come a long way in terms of quality, so... uh Just be, um, you know, just take it from that perspective. The Kia, like I said, I think the Kia is going to be too old. And, um, you know, one of the things you may want to look at in this range, and I'm not noticing it here, probably the sleeper car in this, that's not in this list from this time frame, 2004, 2004 through 2008 Chevy Malibus, before the Chevys got overly complicated and too much electronics, before the 2008 crash, the Malibus. Have been rock solid cars from that generation, from that crop of car. Uh, you know, it's it's tires, brakes, oil changes. The exhaust systems are stainless. The transils will go a buck and a half, hundred fifty thousand miles. The engines will last if you do the oil changes. And the rest of the cars have been pretty solid. You know, um, not terrible at all. But I would look at a two thousand five four, a four to eight four year span of Chevy Malibu. Pretty decent cars. And uh, the reason I include the fours, the fours were the tail end of the previous model or body style, if I remember correctly. Uh, By then, they had gotten it right. The early ones were absolutely terrible. So uh, take a look at that. Last piece of email. One more email. Let me sneak one more in here, Tony. Um, This is from Eileen in Concord, North Carolina. 91 Jeep Cherokee, 200,000 miles automatic. Tries to start by turning the ignition switch, gets nothing. Mechanic told her to put on the brake, swing, shift lever into D1 and back a few times. When she does that, it starts. Eileen, do this. The next time it happens, put your foot on the brake, and shift it into neutral, see if it starts. If it does, it is most likely a problem in the neutral safety switch, either in the alignment or the adjustment or the switch itself. The fact that when you move the lever, it starts points me towards it being a switch. My next step would be to find the signal line out of that switch and check for voltage when it goes into the no-start condition, Or, very simply, if I wanted to, I would find the solenoid feed down at the starter, run a wire back to inside the passenger compartment, and what I'll do is, what I'm describing is wiring in a side marker bulb, a small 194 side marker bulb, such as you might see in a parking lamp, just provide it with power from the starter feed, the signal that would come from the switch to energize the starter, ground the other side, mount the bulb somewhere where you can see it from the driver's seat when you turn the key does the bulb light if the bulb lights and nothing happens it's a bad starter if or it's a starter issue power to the starter on the heavy cable something along those lines if the bulb doesn't light then and wiggle the sw- wiggle the shifter then yes i would say you've got a neutral safety switch issue any more uh, questions or comments ron at r- ron at cardoctorshow.com send me an email eight five 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 six zero nine nine zero zero. I've got to go and take a pause here. Tony's yelling at me. I'll be back right after this. Back, back, Ron and The Car Doctor, kind of rounding out the hour. Uh, we started this hour talking about diagnostic routine. Let me finish the hour by talking about diagnostic routine. Another vehicle came into the shop at Ari Automotive this week, a 2001 Ford Explorer, 140,000 miles, a crank no start. The problem had been going on for about a year and a half, and it ended up on our doorstep because no one could catch it in the act to the point of when it finally died, it was dead. How do they diagnose it? The owner had taken it to one other repair shop recently, And when he described the problem, the mechanic told him, well, it sounds like it needs a fuel pump, but no diagnosis was performed. And you can't do that. Now, there's two schools of thoughts here, and I I get the look a lot of times when I say I'm going to spend some time and diagnose it, and you're going to charge for that? Well, of course, the answer is not going to fall out of the sky. And, you know, obviously I'm going to give you a diagnosis in a certain time frame, and we'll come to a conclusion and decide do we want to go forward. In the case of this explorer, After some time and some effort was made, checked fuel pressure, pinned out the fuel pump relay, made sure the fuel pump relay was working properly. And not just that it clicked, but did the fuel pump relay provide enough voltage and the ability for amperage should the fuel pump come on? In other words, was it working correctly after 16 years that it would actually allow the pump motor to run and run correctly? Came down to the point where we went to connector 311, which is down on the left side of the frame rail on the driver's side, just forward of the fuel tank. And we had everything needed there, power and ground, proper power and ground signal to run that fuel pump. And the pump still didn't turn on. And then we cheated. We banged the tank while somebody cranked it. Pump still didn't run. It sort of caught maybe once. Then it didn't stop. It stopped again. Came to the conclusion, have to drop the tank, lower the tank. We never say drop in a repair shop. We had to lower the tank to verify, you know, could a mouse have chewed the harness between connector 311 and the top of the tank itself, or was the problem in the pump in the tank? Most likely the pump, but my point is, a diagnosis is step-by-step. It's never a quick from the hip. When you're quick from the hip, you're quick to make a mistake, and that ultimately costs the customer money, and you face as a mechanic. So... It, it, the cut, the, the customer owes the mechanic the ability to diagnose, and the mechanic owes it to the customer to return a properly repaired vehicle. I'm Ron Ani, the Car Doctor, reminding you the mechanics aren't expensive; they're priceless. See ya.